Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, treats me like commodity. Back on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. This guy's singing that old, don't know value blues. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that the reason your company exists is to produce more value for customers than it costs you to deliver. It's as simple as that. That is the meaning of life in business. Today, I've got somebody who I just would love to chat about that with, Chris Nealon. Chris is the co-founder of North America's leading marketing engagement agency, which we're going to find out more about. So he and his team have dissected multiple brands, uh, hundreds of brands, to find out what makes gives them cult following. Chris, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here, Mark. So tell us, uh, marketing engagement, not a commonly used phrase. Uh, we use marketing, we use engagement, but not marketing engagement. Tell us about that. Well, it's it's easier to kind of describe what it's not. And I think most um, businesses kind of view their responsibility as creating some sort of value proposition and then relying on a advertising type approach to increase awareness or a sales type strategy to uh, you know, prospect and convert. And um, what we're trying to say is that really the craft of marketing in many organizations has been lost. It's sort of devolved into just this, I call it mark downing departments. They just create promotions. They just create communications. They just buy media. They just manage channels like LinkedIn or you know Pinterest or websites. And um, really what we're seeking is customer engagement. We're seeking employee engagement. We're seeking franchisee engagement. We're seeking shareholder uh, and, you know, uh, engagement. And so uh, engagement, meaning people that are uh, not just invested with their dollar, not just transacting, not just applying, but are advocating. The ultimate sign of a truly engaged audience is their uh, advocacy. Um, not in a shallow sort of net promoter score, sort of willingness to refer kind of way, but in an actual behaviorally, I have such affinity for the brand. I'm out there basically as a non-commissioned salesperson, bringing people into your tribe. That's what we consider good looks like. And we don't think there's many people that are working on that anymore. And so we're, we've we kind of created a new species, if you will, of a service provider that's one part business consultant but we don't get into supply chain or finance or operations and one part agency provider, but we don't buy media and, and focus on, you know, logos and pretty pictures. We're trying to enhance the customer experience so that different stakeholders get super engaged. I, you know, I think that's great. What, what does it take to make uh, a brand highly engaged? What does it take to engage with your clients? What is, 
what is, I, I think you've said you've got eight uh, aspects or eight criteria to make up great uh, marketing engagement. Yeah, you know, so I graduated uh, grad school in 1999. And early in my career, Jim Collins came out with this book called Good to Great. And he looked at the best performing stock companies and tried to reverse engineer what were the attributes and characteristics of their beliefs and behaviors that allowed them to exponentially exceed their mediocre peers using Wall Street performance as his indicator of good. And I always liked that. I always liked that sort of playbook of, uh, of benchmarking somebody that's doing something that you want and trying to figure out what are they doing that I'm not doing and then using that to close the gap. So we did the similar exercise starting in 2010, but we didn't use stock price as our muse. We used engagement, brand engagement. It's actually a KPI that's been studied for nearly 30 years by a group out of New York called Brand Keys. Um, and the problem with their research was that it was very, uh, it was like reading somebody's PhD thesis. It was very dense, it was very complicated. And so we decided, well, why don't we humanize this in a way that CEOs or CMOs could actually understand what's happening in that black box that make, that's making Apple, Apple, or Starbucks, Starbucks, or uh, you know, Tesla, Tesla. And so uh, we, we simply decoded uh, the, the attributes of those cult, what we've now called cult-like brands. That's our provocative language, but it's, it's meant to be a term of affection and endearment to say these brands, they don't have customers. <laughs> they have people, they have raving fans. They have customers on steroids. They have these advocates that are so desirable and so envious. We're like, why isn't everybody just getting cult-like followers? Like that's better than a customer. And the reality is it's because they weren't doing the eight things that these cult brands were doing. So what are some of the eight things? So um, some of them deal with uh, your brand purpose in terms of the, the, the reason why you exist. Uh, too many businesses are in pursuit of profit. Uh, we like to say cult brands are in pursuit of prosperity, which includes financial success, but has other indicators that the C-suite is equally motivated uh, by. So when you look at a Patagonia, they're just as motivated by you know, their shareholder returns as they are about returning lands to, to be explored and to preserving national uh, you know, forestry or, or parks or, or reserves or whatever it might be. Um, so there's something about what, you know, the dent that the company is trying to make in the universe. And it's actually kind of having a moment right now. I think as this idea of being purpose-led has sort of become very vogue in the past five years. Well, really since the, the housing recession of 2009, 2010, uh, I think businesses came out of that downturn realizing we need another way to compete. And so there's a lot of purpose washing happening of the past 10 years, but yeah. purpose, purpose driven has been, you know, it, it's, it's started, you look at the Harley Davidson's or the, the Levi's of the world, the Disney's of the world that have been around for, you know, over, you know, maybe close to a century or more John Deere, these brands have been purpose led before it was cool to be purpose led. Um, there's something that's really interesting about their culture, the, the, the parallels between great places to work and being cult-like and, and whose responsibility is that. It's usually not the HR team's responsibility. You see the job descriptions of the marketing leader having a much bigger role in terms of employee branding, 
recruitment, uh, internal engagement initiatives. They're just more productive. They, they're employee. You look at Airbnb or Chobani. Um, the, you look at Marvel. They're these companies that have you know lineups of people begging to work for them who devote them their best selves to that business, and it helps not just their productivity. But those people, I call, I, we like to say, cult brands don't have employees; they have evangelists. These these people are doing more than just doing their job; they're they're championing on behalf uh, of the brand. And then another one I'll share with you deals with co-creation. So for mediocre brands, they look at their marketing department as almost like the talking department. Give me, you know, tell go tell the marketplace things about us. Go create stories. But within cult brands, the marketing department is the listening department. Uh, and they use things like social media or in-store or call centers as vital to feedback loops to not just understand how well they're delivering, but to literally co-create product. You look at somebody like Lego, Lego fired their entire R&D department and just relies on a community of 10,000 master builders who are not compensated to inform all product decisions, which has drastically increased the rate of adoption and lowered the amount of new product launch failures that Legos enjoyed over the past 20 years. Wow, hold on, I'm gonna cough, I'm sorry. <coughs> all right, so you've said a couple things. Sorry, I'm gonna start again. So you've said a couple things that I, I really wanna chase on, right? The co-creation idea, marketing isn't the telling department, It's uh, interaction or co-creation department or listening department. Um, my life has been lived in the B2B market so that um, my clients don't go to market through advertising, marketing, and promotion. They, they sell enterprise software. So advertising and PR might be a, a perception umbrella or an image umbrella, but the, the work the real meat of the work is done knee to knee with a customer by a salesperson or a sales engineer or a customer service person uh, by a human being to a human being. And uh, I talk about co-creation and I actually talk about the failing of a lot of sales forces in the B2B that salespeople are really well-versed on their features and benefits and their stuff and can barf detail, product detail to customer um, with great skill, but they have no idea what outcomes the customer thinks they're buying. So um, I often hold consumer brands up as, as the ideal for what B2B brands should be doing. And that is that interactive co-creation. Uh, you're saying it's not all B2C brands. It's just a very select elite cult built following few b we really struggle with b2b because i feel like most b2b brands sell themselves so short in terms of how meaningful their product can actually be that whenever we go into a b2b situation they always dismiss well we're not tiffany's we're not porsche we're not espn we don't have this sex appeal and it's like but in so many ways, depending on obviously what you're selling, but in so many ways, B2B solutions are generating livelihood and, and business success 
that is emotionally relevant. We don't have to sanitize it to just base product and features. In fact, Harvard did a wonderful analysis on over 50 emotional triggers that even go into something as sanitized as a procurement process where everybody just thinks that they're only gonna win based on spec and on price. No, those are two of 50 things that's happening in that organization. In fact, we just did some, uh, we just had a speaker, we do a big event every year called The Gathering and we brought in a, uh, uh, an organizational psychologist and uh, kind of a research expert out of London who talked about the only difference between B2B and B2C. And you could also throw in academia and government. Those are two other sort of fundamental institutions that always like to make excuses for why they don't, why the rules don't apply to them, why there's yeah. an exception, <laughs> right? But this is the only difference is that in the B2C space, people buy to avoid regret. You, you choose a restaurant because you don't want to, you know, have a bad meal. You pick the movie because it's going to likely be, you know, something you enjoy. You, you pick the pants that you, you pick the Dockers because you've always worn Dockers. And so if you're not being particularly courageous or experimental in your buying decisions, it's because you as a shopper are conditioned to avoid regret. In the B2B space, the buyer is conditioned to avoid blame. It's why that adage of nobody ever gets fired for hiring IBM. And so there is that, that, that's a subtle but significant difference in terms of their motivation. And so, it, and, but it's very helpful, particularly when I think of sales, I don't think of branding or lead generation, I think of closing. And it's very important in the closing process to understand that if their biggest motivator is to avoid blame, you need to give them the social proof that gives them the confidence to mitigate risk, which would be more important than price or even spec. It's that they have to demonstrate that. And that's why like in my space, which is the professional services space, the ridiculous behavior you see from clients is they will RFP a dozen or more vendors, more than they can possibly manage. They create such a convoluted process. They have to hire search consultants just to manage you know, the process of finding a vendor, but they do that as a cover your ass move to say that I looked at everybody so that I can't be blamed if this goes off the rails or goes sideways. Yeah. You so, know, I, I, I love that avoid blame in the B2B world. If I imagine the committee that's going to buy my stuff, my product or my service, everybody around that table can decide to be silent, to advocate for nothing, advocate for something uh, or or just resist change. And what makes them want to advocate for anything, advocate for you, is that they, they think that something good is going to happen to them or something bad is going to stop happening to them. So there's an emotional, personal thing. And blame is a big part of that, uh, that makes them advocate for something versus nothing. But what comes out of their mouth is a business outcome. So what they buy is the business outcome, why they buy, why they advocate, why they decide against status quo is a personal thing. And blame is, blame is one of the big things. Um, getting credit is, uh, is another thing. Blame, yeah, so, blame is a more powerful motivator, I will grant you. It um, is. I mean, fear, fear trumps recognition in our research. And we just did something very casual on LinkedIn and last month, where um, if, if when presented with the, the two choices of making a decision 
um, to stop something bad from happening to use your word. That, that wasn't how we worded it, but it was basically um, avoid to, a loss versus uh, avoid avoidance based decision. Something negative is happening that I need to prevent versus missing an opportunity. Something positive could happen if I more aggressively pursued it. 80% of the, of the hundreds of respondents indicated that their organizations are a not B. Yeah. And no, so if, if you yeah. need them to buy something or, or open up their checkbook, your salesperson's far better off demonstrating something negative that's going on than trying to titillate them with something positive that could happen. No, Chris, you're absolutely right. The birth of behavioral economics um, had that phenomenon at, as one of its first major discoveries. Tversky and Kahneman discovered that people avoid a, a loss twice as much as they desire a gain. And it has been repeated that two to one ratio has been repeated over and over through dozens or even hundreds of experiments by different behavioral economics around the world using different choices. Um, and you're absolutely right. So I, I have a colleague who counsels his salespeople not to say, if you buy from me, you'll grow your market share. But instead to say, if you don't buy from me, your competitors will grow market share twice as fast as you. <laughs> yeah. It's the exact same thing, but one's yeah. a loss. Yeah. So um, I completely agree with you. I guess the, the other thing that uh, you talked about was, um, what was it? Talked about purpose, talked about co-creation. Oh yeah, purpose. Yeah. The other thing you talked about was, was having a purpose. I am a huge proponent of giving everybody in the company a straight line of sight towards that customer experience, to the customer value, to what we do in the lives of our customer. Uh, famous old story, John Kennedy was touring uh, Mission Control uh, in Houston once it was when it was first being built. And everybody was telling him what their job was. And John F. Kennedy stopped at a, at a janitor and said, you know, what do you do? And the janitor said, I keep these delicate instruments clean and uncluttered. I keep the dirt and dust and spills away from these sensitive instruments so we can get a man to and from the moon safely. The janitor. And in so many companies, we have this stupid thing that, I, that uh, is called the internal customer. The only thing the internal customer is, is a band-aid for the fact that as a leader, you didn't give that person a view toward the real customer. And so you're giving them this artificial substitute of an internal customer. And maybe it's provocative and maybe it's not always true, but anytime you've got an internal customer, I think that you've, you've created a danger spot because you've um, you've given somebody an out for not seeing what the real customer wants. Hey, listen, I love the, the that NASA story is sort of lore and legend. Um, I I'm less romantic about it. I and when I look at why now purpose driven branding is so prevalent, it is directly correlated with the over commoditization of goods and services. Uh, the reality is in North America, we have too much parity. And because there's parity, people are going to devolve to either convenience or cost. 
And so any C-suite that does not want to race to the bottom is seeking, grasping for anything that will allow them to claim differentiation that otherwise doesn't exist because their product or service is pretty mediocre in comparison to the expectations of the competitive offering. <laughs> and so they start glomming onto something. And one of the things that they've been able to glom onto is purpose because purpose creates desirable distinction. There are people who do care about certain causes. Some of them are noble, like climate control, you know, climate change or, you know, testing animal, animal cruelty, you know, testing of products, pollute, polluting the, the oceans with plastic water bottles, sustainability, right? Sustainability is an attempt for the giant companies of the world to create desirable distinction. I, you'd like to think that they're altruistic and that they're doing it because it's the right thing to do, but they're doing it because they expect there to be a financial advantage to say from a consumer seeing all the 19 different ranch dressings on the shelf, I'm going to go with Hidden Valley Ranch because X percent of proceeds from that's making the world a better place. And the reality is it tastes just like the Kraft Ranch or the Paul Newman Ranch or the other person's ranch. So I, I think one of the challenges is how did we get to so much commoditization? I, I remember listening to Elon Musk and he talked about the single biggest problem with the uh, romanticizing of entrepreneurship. And we sort of have this sort of hustle culture, uh, you know, Hollywood version of go being your own boss. He says, everybody's just creating stuff that's five to 10% better than what we already had. And nobody needs to do anything different to get five or 10% better. The Tesla was not a 20% better Prius. It was a 200% better Prius. And where we get concerned is who's making the product or service 200% better? Not many people. Most people are inventing something 10% better and then asking their marketing department to make it seem like it's 100% better through clever storytelling. And what we want to say is stop over-exaggerating. Why don't you start under-promising and over-delivering? But that requires a marketing competency that simply doesn't exist inside most organizations anymore when you talk about what really goes into product development. Yeah, Chris, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Please. Um, I heard of a company that sells pizza ovens to pizza parlors. Uh, that the standard product now is a conveyor belt oven. So you, you put a raw pizza in on this stainless steel conveyor belt, it goes yep, through a, a, it. Yep. a hot box and out comes a, a cooked pizza. And this company um, had highly reliable, they were more reliable. These things are notoriously notorious for breakdowns. And so everybody else, um, need, you, you had to have three, if you're maximum traffic was needed two ovens worth of throughput you had to buy three because one was almost always down and so one company okay. said i'm going to make mine a couple percent more reliable and now you only have to buy two well, now you're 50 you, you can charge almost a 50 percent higher price then they discovered you know what we can cook up we figured out through flame analysis and thermodynamic whatever we can cook a pizza two minutes faster. We can get it through that hot box two minutes faster, which sounds like a pretty small difference. But you know what that does? You don't have any more pizzas you can get through a pizzeria at two minutes faster. 
Do you know you actually get the pizza into the driver's hands four minutes faster because it sits less on the input tray and a, a lot of great things happen. Two minutes faster, a tiny difference in performance. Um, that's a, you know, from 12 minutes to 10% made a huge profitability difference to a pizza oven. So there are some small technical differences that, geez, you, you, you just think maybe two minutes faster, maybe I should be able to charge 5% more for that oven. Well, it turns out that they could have charged triple for that oven and it would have still been a, a benefit for a pizzeria owner. Yeah, I don't think that's pushing back. I think we're saying the same thing and maybe just getting hung up on the percentages. Yeah. What, you, okay. what you've just said to me is a brilliant example of a pizza oven manufacturer doing marketing, which is what if we actually just built a better mousetrap? And what if we found reliability efficiencies? What if we found speed efficiencies? What if we reimagined the way that pizzas are even cooking? And that takes capital, that takes creativity, that takes courage versus what we mostly see is people that have essentially made the same oven but are now trying to get pizza owners to switch because now you can get mine 20% cheaper or you know, it's just other puffery around, yeah. you, know, it, you, you call it a new name, you give it a fancy new thing, you claim some cool new material, but it's essentially the same. So I, I like the fact that with, with somebody that you know, marketing used to be the act of understanding unmet needs in the marketplace and creating solutions that meet those needs. And that's not really marketing anymore. You go to most that, marketing yeah. departments and it's, I'm responsible for email communications. I'm responsible for print ads. I'm responsible for the website. And it's like, well, who's identifying unmet human needs and creating solutions that meet those needs? Oh, that's the uh, customer experience. Oh, that's the uh, customer service survey. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's one of these. Everybody starts pointing to somebody else and you're not and, and, getting the sort of innovation that I yeah. think the world needs to warrant the amount of uh, noise that we're creating in the marketplace. And voice of the customer is a survey, maybe a person, maybe a department in a giant, giant company, not a corporate capability, right? I, yeah. I hate that term, voice of the customer. I want to know the mind of the customer. Who's, who's in charge yeah. of knowing the mind of the customer? Nobody. Yeah, there's, there's a great ad quote about customers don't know what they think, they don't do what they say, and they don't say how they feel. And so it's like, well, then if that's true, asking them any sort of survey is a waste of time because they don't know how to articulate, you know, really, you know, the idea of Henry Ford customers would have asked for a faster horse, right? And so yeah, you do I, have to take some of this research with a grain of salt. And, and, and what we like to do is we don't do satisfaction surveys. We don't do net promoter surveys. We do a thing called audience engagement scoring, but it's almost more like a personality test or like a career aptitude test where you're asking about values. And then you have to try to triangulate if this is how they're feeling, then what might something do that would make them find more joy as yeah. an example. Uh, you know, just asking, do you like this or do you like this tends to be a really poor. Well, that's why 95%, such a staggering statistic, 95% of new products introduced fail within the first 36 months. Every one of those had some piece of survey that said customers said they'd like it, right? And then there's other things like Seinfeld's the classic example, the ATM machine is an example of when customers saw it, they hated it. And then they ended up, they liked it later. So 
I, I think we need, I think, you know, market research is a podcast for another day, but yeah, I, I, I started I, in, yeah, I started in market research, um, almost got my PhD in consumer behavior. Um, and so I, I have a love for that, but the love for it is getting inside the customer's mind and figuring out what's going on in there. Um, yeah. And that's the cool part. The, the survey stuff is not that compelling to me. I, um, I start one of my talks with a story about um, World War II bombers were being lost over Europe really bad. And so that they, they found some of the bombers that came back safely and they tracked all the battle damage and they decided they're going to start armoring the place where all the battle damage was until a smart statistician said, you know, there's no battle damage being reported on the engines, on the cockpits or around the oxygen bottles where if you hit one, it blows up in wild flames. Maybe we're measuring these battle damage on the planes that made it safely back to base. <laughs> so this battle damage is the survivable battle damage. What you're not seeing is, and so it's in statistics, it's called survivor bias. But if I ask a, a CEO, you know, how do you know what value you provided to your customer? And they say customer satisfaction. Well, you only survey the customers that made it safely back to base. Well, that's why we hate net promoter score. It's the most pervasive metric sold on a great premise, which was simplicity. Ask one question to rule them all, but not sold in anything that's either predictive or prescriptive. So your net promoter score can be up and down, discorrelated with your sales, and nobody can understand why, right? Because there's no, there's no diagnostic in that tool that would help identify what's actually happening. So then you're left to try to reverse engineer it on your own. And then everybody out of ego wants to take credit for the good stuff. I mean, I, I consulted with Blockbuster Video in its dying days. And the number of people that were coming to the C-suite asking for more money because their particular strategies were effective was laughable because they're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, this boat is going down, but they're still trying to take credit for coupon redemption rates or, or weekend sales traffic or, you know, some new product launch that, that was a big hit. I was like, no, it, it's that tunnel vision creates real problems. Yeah. I, um, I, I am, I really, I like to ask um, C-suite members, what metrics do you have that measure you know, your client value, and they usually talk to a customer satisfaction, but that's after a customer has been won or lost. Uh, I propose, and tell me if you, you know, tell me your, whether you agree or disagree. You, it, depending on your content, if you talk to a customer about a great experience and do an A-B testing, uh, you can tell from a, what your click-through rates uh, on a piece of content, which content was most compelling, which one engaged people. So you can, in B2B, when I talk to a customer about an outcome that they can achieve, a business outcome, um, I know that whoever clicked on that piece of content ha has at least some passing interest in achieving that outcome. So I can actually predict value before I've even delivered it. Before I've even had the first sales conversation, I can start to draw pictures of some of the perceived values that a, a perceived value that a customer might have. Yeah, I, and that's fine. I think that's a good one. Uh, I know one of the B2B metrics that we really like, it doesn't have to be B2B, but it, more of a direct sales metric, organizations yep. that are more sales centric. Um, 
is time to close. And if you start shortening that window, something's going on. It's either your sales team is getting more and more proficient at understanding the key triggers, uh, overcoming pricing objections, whatever it might be, or that the pipeline is actually getting filled with more and more qualified people who are ready to buy. So it's just less time to convince. It could mean you're working your way up the, the decision maker chain faster. So you're getting more C-suites calling as opposed to mid-level managers, or it just means you're getting more inbound. And so yeah. a lot of content marketing strategy investments, because that's one of our big pushes is we try to shift money away from paid media and put it into owned and earned assets. And one of the indicators of those clearly be, you know, are people reading it, watching it, consuming it, but what's the outcome should be that your time to close should go from six weeks to four weeks to three weeks. And there's tremendous efficiencies there. Obviously you get cash flow in faster. Yeah. It gives you more time to sell product, yeah. but it. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah. I, I buy that as long as the customer buying decision is actually faster. If you just decided to get in later on the customer buying decision um, and so that you won the deal on price or you, are yeah, you sure. It right. Yeah, yeah you um, can hack your way to that metric. Which... If if you, if you if you actually shorten the customer's buying decision by adding so much value and making your value super clear faster than everybody else, two thumbs up. Yeah, I think that's one of the problem. With really good salespeople is the minute you give them a KPI, they reverse engineer what's the least amount of work they have to do to hit that, yeah. and they can start hacking the system that way and. You know, there's many a company that has that that arm wrestle between you know, garbage in, garbage out. If, if the retention team is compensated differently than the acquisition team, yeah. then you're going to get a bunch of crap, you know, that comes in that don't that don't stick around. Yeah. For I, I was talking to the founder of CSO Insights, who um, sold his company out to uh, somebody else, and so his his annual tracking one one of his annual tracking surveys was discontinued in that purchase. At a, on about 2015 or so. But for 20 years, uh, one number had been pretty steady and that was 75% of companies had no component of the sales comp plan based on deal profitability. 25% hmm. of sales forces had any component of the comp plan based on profitability. So 75% of sales forces are paid not to care how much they discount. Um, and so if that's your comp plan, it's easy to, it's then becomes really easy to hack your, your sales plan and say, I'm only going to talk to people at the very late part of the, the deal and price whore my way into a, a short buying cycle. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, Chris, man, we've been talking and, uh, it's been a great conversation. What else have we um, forgotten to ask you about that you want to make sure people know about you and, and your firm? You know, I think our the, the, our mission is to help elevate what's possible. Um, C-suites in particular, I think, um, settle more than strive for what's truly, uh, what, what their potential is truly capable of. When, when we saw cult brands, we not only saw businesses that were wildly successful, businesses that were relentlessly relevant year after year. I just blogged this morning about A&W uh, restaurants. They're a 102-year-old business. We're always fascinated by businesses that have that kind of staying power and, and you know, how they remain relevant you know, generation after generation. Um, 
And so it, it, it cult brands give you everything that you might think you want in terms of your temporary financial success, but they're also, their careers are better. They're more stimulated. They associate with a different caliber of people. They attract a different type of audience to work with them or to invest in them. They just generally seem to be the most desirable types of businesses uh, in the world. And when you look at how they got there, it wasn't that they they possess something in their DNA. They're not smarter than us. They didn't all, you know, they're not Menza, you know, graduates or Harvard graduates. It's it was simply their desire. They simply wanted something more of their career and of their company. And so they made different decisions in order to achieve that. And that's that's really our purpose is to try to inspire people to want something more, to expect something more than just a paycheck. I want Monday to be people's favorite day of the week, not Friday. I want you to be able to go to your job feeling like it's aligned with your values and your personal purpose and that you're making a big difference in people's lives. And um, because we've seen how desirable and delicious that can be, we've devoted a practice, we've devoted, a, you know, we've written a book, we do an event, uh, we do consulting, we do teaching uh, to just say, what if? What if you could do everything that you think you're doing and something even more uh, substantial and, and why not? Uh, because life's too short to settle. What an inspiring way to, to wind up our talk. Thank you, Chris. How can people get a hold of you? Uh, just go to cultideas.com. That's a website where we've got lots of free content, a chance to benchmark hundreds of brands, to, to, to read content about what their playbooks are so that you can get a pretty good feel before you jump in is this something that you actually have the, you know, the, the appetite to do? Cool. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for a great conversation, Chris. You're very welcome, Mark. I appreciate the time. And thanks everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that sales, marketing, and all of business is a lot more like brain surgery than you thought. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.